This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. It's the third Tuesday of the month, so once again, it's time for our Elections 2020 edition of Maine Currents with our regular guests, Professor Amy Freed, Chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Maine, and former State Representative Ralph Chapman. Welcome back, Amy and Ralph. Great to be here. Glad you're both here. And we are recording this via Zoom on Monday, just letting people know that up front. So if anything major happens in the next 24 hours, which God knows these days it could, that's why we're not addressing it. We're, uh, we're on Monday time right now. But I want to start by, uh, we have a number of topics we're going to cover today. But talking about the state legislature and what is happening there, why are they still not in session? Are they ever going back in session? What's the holdup? And Ralph, since you're a former state legislator, do you want to weigh in on that first? Sure. Let me explain that uh, legisl the legislature can be called back into special session in, in two ways by the main constitution. One way is for the governor to call the legislature back, and the governor has so far chosen not to do that. The other way is for the legislative leaders to call the legislature back, but that is with the consent of a majority of each party in the legislature. And what that means is that uh, members of the legislature, both the House and Senate, are polled, asked, do you want to come back in? And if uh, failing a majority of the parties that are represented in the legislature, and at the moment we only have two parties represented in the main legislature, uh, if a majority is not reached from both parties, then the legislature leaders cannot call the legislature back in. So that's, that's, the, that's the reason why the legislature is not going back in, is that the Democrats would like to go back into session and the Republicans would like not to, and have, have been trying to uh, bargain and uh, make, uh, have democratic concessions, uh, Democrat party concessions in order to secure their uh, consent to be called back into session. Uh, obviously, um, the governor could step in and call the legislature back, and, and perhaps she will. I, I, I don't know what the forces are uh, or what her stance on it is at the moment. Why would they not want to come back for a session with all that's happening right now? The state legislature is controlled by the Democrats at the moment. So anytime the legislature is in session, the Democrats can put forward uh, legislation that they would like and, and pass it. And I think that's the, the, the concern for the Republicans is there are some things that they would rather not have the Democrats do legislatively at this time. Amy, do you, you look like you might want to weigh in on that. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I mean, the Republicans want a very, very limited agenda for the return. So, um, you know, really more oriented around things uh, immediately of emergencies uh, related to, to COVID, while Democrats will probably want to pass some other things that were just in process before the legislature adjourned that were really ready to go and could be voted on relatively quickly. Um, I mean, and there's another element that may be involved, which is, uh, I, I don't know for sure, but to me it's striking that the Collins campaign has put a lot of energy into criticizing Sarah Gideon 
for purportedly not doing her work as speaker for a while, and they cite the number of days the legislature has been out. Yet, you know, in the last month or so, they're they're the ones who have been holding it up. Uh, the Republicans of, have. Yeah, in terms of the legislature returning. So they're, they're sort of trying to get this political attack line, at least some element of Republicans. I don't know if it's coordinated, you know, but it's certainly the Collins campaign has been, and the main Republican party has been very vocal on, on that sort of attack against Gideon, while at the same time, the legislature is, is not coming back because the Republicans are, are refusing to even vote on it because the constitution requires majorities from the different parties which I'm sure, you know, as it, in that route, you know, rather than the, the governor uh, calling for its return. And, and I think that from what I know, that's a pretty unusual constitutional provision for a state constitution. But, uh, you know, meanwhile, that is what our state constitution has to say. I thought I remembered early on in the pandemic, the Republican state legislators were chomping at the bit to get back because they wanted to curtail some of uh, Janet Mills' policies. Is Has the governor said anything about why she does not want to call them back into session? I haven't heard her say anything publicly about that. I have not seen that either. I know of no reason. Hmm. Okay, so then moving, expanding the picture, Congress is also on recess until after Labor Day, leaving with the stimulus package just completely at a deadlock, apparently. Um, and then since the last time we all talked, we've had the executive orders, which people are finding quite confusing from Trump, trying to figure out how to ex uh, implement this um, tax holiday and the $300 in the federal government if the state government's kicking an extra $100 for the unemployment. And so that seems to have created a little bit more chaos in the system. But they're on recess until after Labor Day. Is there any chance of them coming back in or do they work in small groups during this time? And then if something looks like it might have bipartisan support in terms of like a stimulus package, uh, would they come back for that, or is there just no way we're going to see anything out of them until September? Well, I think we, you know, we have to distinguish between the House and the Senate. So in the case of the House, which is controlled by Democrats and led by Speaker Nancy Pelosi, they passed a version of a new stimulus bill True. quite a while ago. The you HEROES know. Act. Yeah, it's probably about a month ago. Um, it was certainly more generous than anything that Republicans wanted in terms of aid to states, aid to individuals who are unemployment, and just a wide array of other kinds of funding. Uh, it also had a lot of money in it for the post office. Uh, now, actually, Pelosi did say last night that she wants to call the House back to take up some action on the post office. I don't know exactly when that's going to happen, but it sounds like it certainly will happen before Labor Day. And in an odd way, the fact that the Democratic Convention is being held virtually is a little bit of an advantage because you don't have to have these people disrupt their time at the convention to, to come to Washington, D.C. They can, you know, they'll come from wherever they happen to be. 
But they, they, it sounds like something is going to happen on the House side. And, of course, something already has happened. On the Senate side, um, McConnell has had two kinds of trouble. One of them is that he is very far apart from where the Democrats are, where the House bill is. But, you know, of course, he could make certain offers. But he's, there's also a lot of division within the Republican caucus where he said that about 20 members, uh, Republican members, do not want to do anything. They don't want to pass a a new bill at all. They think there's enough money that's been spent. Um, And then there's other kinds of divides within within his caucus. So he has, um, you know, let the Senate go out, dismiss them. And, you know, it doesn't sound like they are going to come back for a while at this point. Did you want to add anything to this, Ralph? Any thoughts about the situation? Well, I did see in the news that um, Bernie Sanders is called, uh, no, I'm sorry, was uh, uh, Schumer had, had called on McConnell to call the Senate back in and uh, uh, to deal with the postal crisis. And I uh, don't expect that uh, McConnell will do that, but that's uh, that's at least on the table. So, yeah, the situation of the post office, we should talk about that a little bit and how that may affect uh, the upcoming elections as well. It sounds like, uh, so for anybody listening who hasn't been following this story, they, uh, pictures started emerging last week of mailboxes, just a regular street corner mailboxes being loaded on the back of trucks and hauled away in certain cities around the country. and someone who is being interviewed about that situation who works for the post office on uh, one of uh, NPR's programs happened to mention that they also were taking away the sorting machines, which was news to everyone to hear that the sorting machines were also getting removed from post offices, which greatly would slow down processing mail. Governors of all except four states, and I'm not sure what that's about, what the four states that didn't get them were, but the others received letters, including Maine, last week, saying that people should expect to have to mail their mail-in ballots 15 days in advance of the election in order for them to get there in time. So this is, you know, mailing something to your own hometown, basically, would take 15 days that uh, to plan accordingly. And... A lot of this just kind of came to a head so quickly that over the weekend, uh, the postmaster general who is implementing these changes on behalf of the Trump administration, uh, an investigation was launched. He has conflicts of interest already that were concerning because of companies that have contracts with the post office, but and also you know not having any experience in this kind of direct line of work when he was appointed postmaster general understand that there's an inspector general that is doing an investigation now, as well as Congress wondering what's happening. And already over the weekend, there was some backpedaling going, saying, we're not, oh, right, not going to remove, it turns out there was a plan to remove the mailboxes from many other states. We're not going to do that. And we're going to stop removing the sorting machines. Not sure if they're going to be putting the sorting machines back or not. We were talking briefly before we started taping this program today, and I mentioned that someone that I spoke with over the weekend, who's a staunch Trump supporter, was actually and has defended many other things that over the years that a lot of people would not be okay with. 
this was sort of a last straw. Do you think that that, and Amy, I know that part of your uh, area of expertise that you've written books about has been about public opinion. Do you think that this, after all of the things, is something that hits closely enough to home that, and they realized that they were going to be having such backlash that they needed to backpedal on this? Well, I mean, I would say this is one of these kinds of issues that is, not that it doesn't have some complexities to it, which we could talk about it, but in many ways, it's extremely straightforward. People are used to getting their mail. They're used to sending mail. They're used to receiving it. They're used to ordering things in the mail. Small businesses are used to sending things in the mail. I mean, this is just a very ordinary part of our lives. And the post office has been around really literally since the beginning of the United States. It's, it's in the Constitution as something that uh, the federal government will do, specifically named. It's not at all vague. You know, so this is something we all know about, we all have experience with, and many of us depend on. I mean, I know someone who's an elderly man who's a veteran who receives his prescriptions from the VA through the mail. And probably many of us know somebody like that. Um, you know, so it's something that we all live with, we have experience with. 91% of the public in a Pew poll, you know, within the last few years, liked the post office. It's like one of the most, probably the most positively seen government agency. You know, so when you mess with something like that, that people are used to, that they get benefit from, that's embedded in our everyday life, that people like, and that has real ramifications for their lives, there's going to be some backlash to that. Now, it's hard to know if that itself would make the difference for some particular voters. It's possible that it will, that it might push them over away from Trump or just cement others, but it's it, it's it's clearly um, a terrible policy what's going on. It's going to be interesting to see if they can even reverse some of the things that they're doing to revive the post office and its and its administrative capacity, its ability to do its job. You know, and um, but it's something that I that I think people most definitely want. And I'll, I'll just add one more thing before we go on to further conversation, you know, maybe some of the backstory to this, which is that it's there's something that people have known, political scientists have known about public opinion towards government for decades, like the first studies being done in the 1970s, which is that if you ask people in general, do you want government to do more? Or what do you think of government? You don't get very positive responses most years. Once in a while you do. But most of the time people are in general not that positive towards the government doing things. But when you ask them about specific things, do you want government to uh, help uh, with health care for people who can't afford it or you know, whatever it happens to be, make sure that the food supply is safe, you know, so specific things. Yes, people then do like government. And I would say one of the things that people like specifically that we know is the post office. <laughs> so, you know, that general anti-government attitude does 
can't really operate effectively when it comes to something that is so much, you know, something that people are aware of and used to and appreciate. Ralph Chapman, did you want to weigh in on that? Well, I, I, I think Amy has stated this very well, that uh, we have an administration at the moment at the federal level that is messing with a piece of our lives. Uh, and it appears to be solely for the purpose of disrupting and raising questions about the legitimacy of the upcoming election. And I think that is really the, uh, uh, the, the worst aspect of it, which is that anything that delegitimizes de the election provides an excuse for all kinds of difficulties uh, uh, following that, uh, following the election. And I, that's, that's my worry about it. Let me just remind listeners, you're listening to Maine Currents. I'm Amy Brown. My guests today are our Elections 2020 regular guests. You just heard from Ralph Chapman. He's a former state representative from this area and also Professor Amy Freed, Chair of the Political Science Department at the University of Maine. So Trump has been pretty upfront about first he was not going to pass uh, sign off on funding for the post office because you know, he just came right out and said it because it'll, you know, mess up people being able to do mail-in voting, which he's trying very hard to make some kind of distinction between absentee voting and uh, mail-in voting, which is the same thing. And he and his family and many of his, including this uh, press spokesperson on his staff, also use absentee voting. So he was vocal about that but prior to even all of this he's had it out for the for the uh, post office for a while post office has not been his favorite institution i'm not sure what the backstory is on that do either of you have any no okay so just with this situation then is and the governor of Michigan said that the one of the areas that was targeted in her state was Pontiac, which is an area that's a predominantly people of color. Is there any way that this could be construed as voter suppression? I mean, in any kind of legal sense? I, I think so. And actually, the New York Times reported this morning that a coalition of state attorneys general, Democratic states, state attorneys general are going to be filing a whole series of lawsuits that focus on that aspect, not only interfering with the mail, but, but interfering with elections and interfering with the delivery of ballots, whatever the specific laws are. I don't know if Maine's attorney general, Aaron Fry, has signed on to that effort, uh, but um, it, it is going to be happening. It was a, you know, a little vague uh, about what what particular laws, but they probably also vary by state, you know, since it is state attorneys general who are, who are bringing these suits. Uh, so, you know, and I think it's very clear from things that Trump has said that that's exactly what he's doing. He's, he's claimed that mail voting or absentee voting, whatever you want to call it, it really is the same thing, um, is illegitimate and susceptible to fraud. There's no evidence for that at all. Um, and that's why he wants to withhold funding. So he's, he's, he's been incredibly open about it. 
And then you have these, what I consider really outrageous actions. And I, it's, it's just remarkable to, to take mail sorting machines, to take uh, boxes off of the street where people can you know, put in their mail to be picked up. Just the slowing down of mail, people reporting these big slowdowns. I mean, to, to do that for that reason is just is just amazing. And the you know it there is the the longer background to some of the things with the post office. You can go back 15 years, and there was a bill that actually Susan Collins introduced called the Postal Accountability Enhancement Act which included a lot of different provisions, but one that was very important for the, the fiscal situation that the post office is in now is that it required pre-funding 75 years of pensions for uh, employees of the postal service, which no other agency has to do and no private business has to do. So it's a, you know, it's, it's this, uh, huge amount of money that the, the Postal Service is supposed to take every single year and put into an account that, you know, then puts the overall agency um, or is a major contributor to putting the agency in the red. Uh, so, you know, that that has really undermined the postal system. There's also part of the Republican uh, um, coalition, the very, you know, sort of libertarian Koch brothers side that would like to privatize the postal system. And then the postmaster general, the current individual has all kinds of investments, as you already suggested, Amy, in private companies that are, that are competitors to the postal service. So there's the undermining of our election system along with this longer term financial problem that was imposed upon them. Plus you have this side where somebody is making money or could make a lot of money out of undermining the postal system. And the postmaster general has been a big contributor to a number of Republican politicians, including to the super PAC that Mitch McConnell has, uh, which is then going to support all of these different Republican senatorial candidates, including Senator Collins. So the, there's so many elements to this story. I think for the average person though, it's this feeling of here's, here we are in this moment, you know, we have this pandemic, we have this economic problem that's a result of it. And now you're messing with my mail. I mean, it just it just is another a blow to people in, in how they live their lives. If it was demonstrated that this postmaster general does have contract conflicts of interest that have not been resolved that uh, should have been before his taking this job or within a certain period of time of him starting the job, what is, do you have any idea either of you what the process might be for holding him accountable for that or Trump accountable for appointing him if that were the situation? Well, I'll comment that the legitimacy of um, public officials with respect to conflicts of interest uh, is, is, a, is complicated. It's complicated to hold accountable. We had a situation here in Maine uh, uh, within the last decade in which 
a um, secretary of, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, the uh, treasurer of the state had a conflict of interest uh, that is, that's prohibited by the constitution of the state. And yet it was not possible through the normal legislative processes of holding him accountable for that transgression of Maine's constitution. Now, there are procedures in the constitution for dealing with misbehavior. Uh, it's called impeachment. And in Maine, any uh, uh, elected official or appointed uh, officials appointed uh, by elected officials are subject to, to impeachment. But the impeachment process, as we know, is, is very politicized. It requires a, a, a House majority vote in the House and a, a two-thirds vote in the Senate to be able to uh, remove someone from office on account of their misbehavior. Um, and so, in, in a sense, holding the, someone accountable is not as easy as simply identifying the transgression, pointing out that it is a transgression and having it corrected. And on this level, I think it would be probably so politicized and with so many other things going on, I don't know if this would end up being something that gets addressed directly, although it's definitely getting a lot of attention right now. So the arbiter of of conflicts in our society is handled by the, the, the third branch of government, the uh, judicial branch. And one of the things that why I think it's very serious, uh, those efforts that delegitimize the election, for instance, and throws it into some question, is any lawsuit that derives from that uh, difficulty in, in understanding the outcome of an election will then be in the court system. And so then we get to a situation, uh, we could be back in a situation like the 2000 election in which the Supreme Court selects the winner, uh, which is uh, terrible for the courts, the legitimacy, the public view of the legitimacy of the court system is badly eroded when, when it comes to that. But uh, that may be what, we, what we'll be dealing with again. I, I think with this particular postmaster general in general, it is going to be hard to hold him accountable, but there may be ways that it can happen. I mean, certainly these public hearings, even they, they could, you know, be ignored, I suppose, but often they do put pressure on somebody. Um, and sometimes even when there's, if there's some kind of major scandal, you'll have someone who will resign as a result of it because it's just causing too much damage and then it lets the president kind of turn a bit of a page and say, well, it was that person who did it, not me. Um, I could imagine some lawsuits in federal court where they try to get a judge to put a preliminary injunction, at least on doing further harm. Um, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't, you know, I can't talk specifically about these, the, the laws they might use. As I mentioned, there's the state attorneys general are going to act. There could also be civil suits from individuals who say that there's harm that they suffered. Perhaps their prescriptions didn't arrive on time. And, um, you know, maybe someone had suffered some harm as a result of that. I've seen a number of places, people making posts about how they had been awaiting medication hadn't come yet sometimes cancer medication, sometimes insulin, all sorts of things that people need. So um, 
it, yeah, it's sort of hard at this moment to see what will happen with all of this. I do think it's good, though, that Pelosi has asked the House to come back to, to do something. Uh, although, you know, yeah, they could be, they certainly could be in order, even if they did go ahead and impeach, because then, you know, the Senate may just ignore that. Right, right. That's the thing. They can come back. The HEROES Act that they did pass, I think, was $3 billion. And what the uh, Senate was willing to look at was, even before that completely broke apart, was maybe a third of that. So they're pretty far apart and it seems like anything that they do is going to be like that at this point moving forward just got sort of gridlock there so right what what can they accomplish even if they do come back without the senate undermining undermining whatever the house tries to do so back when i think it was yeah it was march the last time we met in the station to record this show before we started having all of the work from home and all of the COVID precautions, you know, one of the first things that came to my mind, and I think a lot of people might've thought I was being a little bit paranoid about this, was that somehow this pandemic could be used to postpone the election or somehow Trump would use it to not, to try to stay in office. Uh, actually, today it was announced that the Prime Minister of New Zealand is postponing elections there because they've got a resurgence after having about 100 days with no cases. They suddenly last week had an outbreak at, um, at an import facility, so they're not sure where that came from, so they're going to postpone their elections. I don't think she's actually up for re-election, but postpone one of their elections for a few weeks while it slows down. Uh, this seems to be a setup just based on the way he's presenting it for Trump, this whole situation with the post office and mail-in voting for him to question the legitimacy and try to drag out the results. You have in the past when we've talked about this, Amy Freed said that in January when he, when the date comes, he's no longer president. Can you explain how that works again, even if things are still being counted? what happens in January? Is it January 20th? Yeah, January 20th, the Constitution says, you know, that's when the term for a president begins. So, you know, um, that's, that's it. There will be a new president at, at, or there will be Trump again if he's reelected. Um, I don't think he can postpone the election. Uh, you know, of course, there's all kinds of things you think ne that can never happen that don't happen. But I mean, it really is set in law. It's more, what is he going to do to try to delegitimize it and delegitimize the counting of it? And Trump has a very long history with this. You know, he did some of that in 2016. In the last debate, he said that he may not accept the uh, results of the election. He recently said that again to Chris Wallace. He would keep people in suspense as to whether he would accept it. He raised uh, questions during the primaries in 2016, called different people trying to commit fraud against him and cheating and rigged elections. He said things in 2018 about Florida counting its ballots. Like, why didn't they just stick with the initial election night? results instead of counting all these mail-in ballots, you know, absentee ballots. 
So, I mean, he's done this many, many times. And I think what a lot of people would um, expect is that he's going to possibly or very likely do it again if it's at all close. And I mean, what people had, what I think a lot of us had been expecting is that the day of count, not including mail-in ballots, if those weren't counted ahead of time, and then therefore announced on election, you know, with the initial election returns, is that the that that the the, the those voting during election day on election day uh, would probably be a little bit more pro-Trump than the than the mail-in ballots. Because uh, because not it doesn't happen this way always, but um, if you look at who's more concerned about safety during the pandemic, it's more likely to be people who are going to vote Democratic versus people who are going to vote Republican. The how in the who, world did that happen? <laughs> well, it is just absurd how certain things have become partisan. It's just like this should yeah. not be partisan at all, nor should be. Uh, you know, all kinds of other things relating to even voting systems, whatever. I can go on about that for a while, but um, really. So, so, but, but because of the difference in how people perceive the safety of in-person voting, a lot of people are thinking that what would happen is that the in-person voting would tend to be more pro-Trump than the overall voting and certainly the mail-in voting. So then as the, as the votes get counted over time, the vote would move further and further away from Trump. And he would, but he would declare that stop it, all these other things are fraudulent, you can't trust the mail-in votes. I mean, he's setting everybody up for that right now. Um, and then there could be a whole series of lawsuits about it. Um, I know that there's another thing that could be happening, which is a little bit even maybe more scary in some ways, which is that there will be all these attempts to disrupt people voting at the, at voting sites, um, you know, because some people will still come out and vote and question whether people are able to vote, which sometimes happens anyway. But the last time we had a presidential election, the Republican Party was under a consent degree imposed by a court to not do that kind of thing. Um, at least, you know, to the extent that they had in the past, because it was seen as um, trying to disrupt the black vote and, you know, Hispanic vote. So it was uh, racially motivated kinds of actions. But that dissent consent decree just sort of expired in terms of the timeline and was not reimposed. I know that the DNC is trying to uh, recruit lawyers, law students, and others to do extensive voter protection work so that people whose votes are challenged at polling places can can still vote. Uh, but there's a whole series of things that are going on to, you know, kind of delegitimize and interfere with the election. So uh, if he has, uh, on January 20th, if you say he's out of he's out of the White House. He's no longer president if he isn't reelected, which you know he may be. But if there's no result by January twentieth, then what happens? If well, all of the legal challenges do slow it down that much, 
Right. Well, one okay. One thing that's interesting in the Constitution is that the 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 people who are elected to Congress or who are carryovers from in the Senate, because only a third of the Senate is up at any one time, uh, but the new people elected to the Senate, the or reelected to the Senate, plus the entire House of Representatives, they are sworn in earlier. I, I believe it's the fourth of January. Uh, so they're already going to be there. So if you don't really have someone who's president, you would go down the presidential line of succession. And the presidential line of succession would be probably Nancy Pelosi, right? I mean, so (laughs) Nancy Pelosi could become president. On the other hand, I think it's very unlikely that it won't be resolved. I think that by something, you know, the Supreme Court will ensure that there is somebody who, who has declared president by then. But the states, there may be some states that will have a lot of litigation that goes on for a while to, uh, you know, to figuring out who has gotten the electoral votes of, of that state. You know, one thing I've mentioned before, which is, again, kind of a bizarre possibility, but but certainly possible is that there could be some states that would the state legislatures that would try to say, um, well, we can't determine based on the votes who actually was the winner because of various problems. So we're going to pick who has the electoral votes, which, um, you know, constitutionally they can do that. The most common means of choosing electors in the early 19th century was by state legislatures. So it's certainly possible for state legislatures to do that. Now, they might run into some legal problems that their own state courts would have to resolve about that if they're doing it like after the fact, after the election has already happened. Um, So, you know, that's one of those bizarre possibilities that given that there's a constitutional space for it, I suppose could happen. But I do think that it's pretty unlikely or, you know, vanishingly unlikely that we won't have somebody ready to be sworn in. But if there wasn't, if there somehow wasn't somebody on January 20th, there is going to be a new president according to the Constitution, and it would follow the line of succession, which is only in law. It's not in the Constitution. But there is a line of succession that I don't think is going to get changed between now and then, you know, which is that the, if there's, you know, you go after the president and vice president, you have the Speaker of the House. If you're just joining us, you're listening to the Elections 2020 edition of Maine Currents. I'm Amy Brown. That was Professor Amy Freed you just heard from. We've also been talking with our other regular guest, uh, uh, Ralph Chapman. He's a former state representative. Uh, You mentioned that Congress could possibly play a role in deciding what happens if these challenges take place. But if their elections also in flux because they're on the same ballots, Right, but I but the state secretaries of state and uh, governors have often some role in this too, can certify those elections before they certify a presidential election. You know, okay. they can still go ahead and certify those individually, just like in 2018, it took a while to certify the main second congressional district race. Um, and all the other races were certified before that. Ralph Chapman, do you want to weigh in on this before we move on to something else? 
Sure, and, and just to talk about the delay in understanding what the voter out, the, the election outcome is, um, this subject comes up a number of times. It comes up um, with ranked choice voting. People are concerned about the time delay, and that has to do with how ranked choice voting is implemented. Uh, but I'm, I'm reminded that um, it's only uh, well, recently, in the last uh, 50 or 60 years, that that elections have been able to be run quickly enough for uh, the outcome to be known uh, the evening of the election. Um, and uh, that resulted, of course, in the difficulty in which uh, the election was, was called before polls closed in parts of the country. And, uh, adversely affected uh, down ballot races um, so that news media are now do not make the predictions of uh, the election outcome until the time zone uh, uh, closing times for the polling uh, are, are closed uh, everywhere in the, in the country uh, but it's uh, We've, we've grown accustomed to sort of the instant knowledge of what the election outcome is, but I, I think that it's uh, uh, certainly tolerable on the, on the public's part to, uh, to wait as long as the process seems to be a legitimate one. Uh, I think the, the most severe attack of legitimacy in the electoral processes did happen in, in the 2000 presidential election which was ultimately decided by the, uh, the Supreme Court. Uh, and, and as I say, with, I think, deleterious uh, re, uh, effects on the uh, public attitude about, about the court and, uh, and about the legitimacy of, of the election. All right, shifting gears a little bit. Uh, last time, excuse me, last time we talked we were talking about the potential running mates that Biden was selecting from. Since then, he's made that choice. What do you both think about Kamala Harris and the pros and cons of her as a running mate for Joe Biden? I think she's a very strong running mate, actually. You know, and I think that she's had a good effect so far for the Biden candidacy. She's seen positively in the polling that we've had so far. Um, and they're, you know, just some of the more anecdotal kinds of stories. There seems to be a lot of excitement from certain communities, uh, both um, communities of color, also people, uh, you know, from her background. I mean, she has, uh, our mother was from India. Her father was from Jamaica. You have very large Caribbean population in Florida and some other states. They're very excited about that, that she's uh, been picked. And also there's uh, quite a lot of people of Indian ancestry in the United States uh, who, who are excited as well. And, and to me, it's sort of fascinating when you have this president who's, who has had such a strong anti-immigrant agenda to have someone who is the daughter of two immigrants who has been who has been selected. It, this is almost like in, in the old days, what we, a lot of people across the aisle would have sort of held up as like, this is the American dream. Someone can come to this country and then, you know, they get an education and then their children, a child can, can rise to this high office. 
you know, and and so I, I think in general it's been very it's been very positive so far. I'd like to mention as well the uh, the fact that uh, we have a a woman on uh, on a ticket, uh, but I think that's also a, a hidden problem, and I'll tell you why I think that's a hidden problem, which is that in the uh, 2016 presidential election, I was running for re-election at that time myself. And it, in my district, uh, my race and the race for the uh, state Senate and the race for uh, the uh, uh, for Congress and the race for uh, the president all on the ballot at the same time, in each case pitted uh, um, a man against a woman. All four men won, all four women lost. The thing that I was aware of that is not generally known uh, was anecdotal information that I got from poll workers who expressed to me their surprise that uh, of, of the number of ballots that they were counting in which the person had selected uh, President Trump at the top of the ticket and had selected me at the bottom of the ticket, knowing that politically and ideologically we're uh, so far apart. That told me that there was a, a level of misogyny being ex that within our culture that that was evident in, in that information. And I think that we're probably doing ourselves a disservice not to recognize the, the, the degree of and the power of uh, the misogyny as well as the racism that it pervades our society. And of course, uh, many of us do it, what we can to work uh, against those uh, ill forces. But uh, I, I, I think that, that may be a problem. Um, uh, I, I, at the same time, I'm excited to see the opportunity for, for us to show our better sides. All right, just a couple more things as we're wrapping up here that have been in the news since the last time we met. Uh, the, it appears that the most recent challenge to ranked choice voting has failed and, uh, and been verified that it actually failed. So remind us again where things stand with ranked choice voting on the fall ballot. Is that going to be in all of the races here in Maine? It's going to be in the congressional races, meaning the House and the Senate races. That's it. Um, and there really have been like two recent failures. One was the attempt. Oh, in the presidential race. That's right. <laughs> because that's what the that's what the petitions uh, for the people's veto were about, um, which there, there seemed to be inadequate numbers of signatures. So that's. Um, that's one way in which the opposition to ranked choice voting has failed is not qualifying the people's veto on presidential ranked choice. But there also was a lawsuit heard in federal district court recently and Judge Walker, who had decided the 2018 uh, cases on ranked choice voting in Maine second congressional district, uh, did, was asked to issue a preliminary injunction to stop ranked choice from being used this year and he refused to do so. 
Um, and, you know, I, I read the, I read the briefs, I read the decision and there, it just, there's the evidence that was put forth and the kinds of arguments that were put forth against ranked choice voting just were not very strong at all. I mean, you know, there was, there were these claims that it disenfranchises voters, yet the four voters who they, who they had signing a statement, each of them voted for Bruce Poliquin, each of them had their vote counted all the way through the entire process. And even those who, um, you know, did not make it to the top two voters who just ranked Tiffany Bond and Will Hoare, uh, you know, the, the, there's a very low number of those people, first of all. It's under 5% of all voters. And it's hard to really argue that they're, disen, they're disenfranchised. I mean, they still cast their ballots and they just decided on their own not to rank somebody after that. And Judge Walker pointed out that the drop-off between uh, the number of people who vote when you have two separate elections, you have a, you know, an initial one and then you have a runoff between the top two finishers, the drop-off in the number of people who show out to vote is usually at least 10%. So here you had a drop of 5%, about 5%, which is you know half of what the usual drop-off would be from one cycle to another of a normal runoff. And nobody thinks that that runoff is unconstitutional. You know, and I could sort of go on uh, with this because the, the just sort of the claims that were made just did not hold water. I don't know if the Collins campaign, because this seems to be focused on that race, the arguments, the, the specific uh, individuals who were claiming they might be disenfranchised by this are all intending to vote for Susan Collins. I, I don't know if the Collins campaign intends to bring this up again, should they end up in a situation where she wins a plurality, but after the ranked choice tally, not a majority, which would really be the only situation in which I think she has any ability to bring a case. If she doesn't even win a plurality, what can she argue? But, I, but in general, the arguments against ranked choice have just not been have not been strong and the evidence has not been strong. And I'll tell you, I say this as someone who did not support it the first time because I do like the idea of a clean sort of runoff, even though I knew that there were problems with that, uh, you know, a separate, a separate election. But I voted for it the second time because I felt that people had decided in Maine. And, and in fact, it did get a higher uh, number of votes the second time that it was on the ballot. Um, and I don't see any evidence that Maine people in general have decided they don't want to use it uh, going forward. And each person has the option themselves. Uh, they have the opportunity to rank the candidates or, or not, as, uh, as Amy's pointed out. Uh, so um, because everyone has the same opportunity at the, at the beginning doesn't mean that uh, the weight of their vote will carry through. And that's true of non-ranked choice elections as well. Uh, everyone who votes for the losing candidate, their vote didn't matter. Um, and so that's, uh, uh, and that's the case with ranked choice voting uh, as well. And if one only ranks uh, the candidates who, who lose uh, first, um, uh, you haven't been disenfranchised, you haven't been denied the right to state your opinion, and you haven't 
and you've had the opportunity to vote uh, the way you want to vote. One referendum that we won't be seeing on the ballot this November is the CMP corridor referendum. Uh, you, the Maine Supreme Court ruled it unconstitutional. They said, quote, plainly a proposal that is outside the scope of the people's right to initiate legislation cannot as a constitutional matter proceed to the electorate as a direct initiative, end quote. Ralph, I know you have an opinion about this. Well, right. I, one has to understand that uh, laws are made by legislative bodies at, at the federal level by Congress, at the, at the state level uh, largely by the uh, state legislature. Uh, but uh, 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 there are other, uh, other bodies that uh, legislate, um, agencies legislate by rulemaking, uh, the public legislates by having an initiative petition process. So the body politic, the, 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 the public body is a legitimate um, legislative body through the citizen initiated petition process for making laws. And, uh, and, and to <clears throat> suggest that they, uh, that that, that uh, uh, should be limited, um, uh, I, I, I don't agree with this decision. Um, uh, every legislative body has the opportunity to undo or redo uh, what has happened before it. So for example, the citizen petitions uh, in, uh, uh, was it the 2014 election? Uh, or I'm, I'm sorry, I guess it was the 2016 election, uh, of, the, of the five uh, referenda questions, four of them were substantially changed or overturned by the state legislature. After the citizens legislated, uh, the legislature undid their legislation. And, uh, and occasionally, of course, the legislature will do something and then the citizens undo it. Uh, to suggest that the citizens cannot undo this one because um, they didn't have, uh, there was some, some difficulty with uh, uh, a, a process in, in which uh, they didn't have authority over it. I, I, I'd say the citizens have some authority over every law. And uh, I, I don't see the, the justification for trying to parse that into areas where the citizens have the rights and it's where the citizens don't have the rights to legislate. It'll be interesting to see how that goes moving forward. Just have a couple minutes left. I want to leave you both a chance to, with any final thoughts about anything election 2020 oriented that you want to mention. And uh, Amy, also, we have been remiss in that we haven't been letting people know about your blog where they can also find more of your thoughts. So if you could mention that as well. Uh, Ralph spoke last. Do you want to go next, Amy? This is Professor oh, sure. Amy Sure. Sure. Yeah, I have a I have a regular column every other week in the Bangor Daily News. Um, at this point, because of the way the BDN has changed things, it doesn't show up automatically on my blog until I move it over uh, into it. But um, the blog uh, and um, columns can usually be found at pollways.com just directly, or you can find the columns through the opinion page of the Bangor Daily News. 
Um, and I guess one thing that I'm paying attention to or will be paying attention to in the next few weeks is how both parties handle their conventions, which will be virtual. Um, I know that the Democrats have uh, had a, put a lot of uh, attention to it, even though they've had to do it very quickly, involving uh, someone to run it who's had a lot of involvement in like producing the Tony Awards and other major sorts of events like that. And there is a website that they have that lists all of the speakers. Michelle Obama is on Monday night. I don't recall who is Tuesday night, uh, but um, you know you can, you can go find that and also watch other kinds of things through the site. And then many other things will be, you know, the evening, uh, nine through 11, I'm, I'm sure will be on television, but they're also really going to be used a lot of different, a lot of different platforms to deliver this. All right, thank you. And the, and the Republican convention is the following week? And then the Republican convention is the following week. I have not seen the specific details and I don't think they have a website yet, but I'm sure they will also, you know, try to be getting out their message as, as much as possible. Great, thank you. And Ralph Chapman, last word. Well, I think it's time for us to remember that uh, we have a right to vote and I encourage everyone to do everything possible to be sure that your vote is uh, entered and, and uh, counted. All right, good last words. I wanna thank you both again for joining me today. This uh, is the elections 2020 edition of Maine Currents and you just heard from former state representative Ralph Chapman and prior to that, Professor Amy Freed, chair of the political science department at the University of Maine at Orono. This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views and culture. We do these election 2020 editions of the program on the third Tuesday of each month. We'll be back on the first Tuesday of September. At that time, we'll have more in a series of panel discussions on racism in Maine, sponsored by the Holocaust and Human Rights Center of Maine. I'm Amy Brown. You can reach me at news at weru.org. If you've missed any of our programs, you can listen later at weru.org. Just click on the archives tab, as well as on the WERU app. Thanks for listening and keep it tuned here to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill and streaming online at WERU.org. And you can listen live also on that great WERU app. If you don't have it yet, check it out.